I'm Kyler McDaniel from Fangrass.com, and on the other line, whenever he's holding a carton of ice cream, he's my favorite scoop man. It's Jeff Passan. Did you really just do that? We're, we're big on lame jokes here. I guess you haven't been listening lately. I mean, that's really bad. <laughs> well, things are off to a roaring start. Uh, it's not the first time that's been said, and it's not the first time you've told me that. So This is, this is a good, this is like high-quality content here, and you're coming with a scoop joke. This actually reminds me, Mike, Mike Oz and Chris Swick, my, my former colleagues at Yahoo Sports, one time, I don't remember where it was, because they're, they're all horrible and they all blend together. Uh, but they came up to me with like a pint of Ben and Jerry's and said, this is for all of your scoops or something terrible like that. That feels worse, and, but not completely different. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's worse because they actually like took the time to go out and purchase ice cream. And presumably didn't even eat it. They just handed you a full one. They did. And you know what? I, because I'm just completely ungrateful, I handed it right back to them and said, I have work to do. You guys go take your ice cream and enjoy it. All right. I'm, I'm going to try this again. We're going to start from the top. I'm Kyle McDaniel no, from Fangrafts.com, and on the other line, if you're on a plane, start, no. don't talk to him, because he doesn't want to talk to you, Jeff Passon. <laughs> Much better. I like that. Thank you. <laughs> All right, we've hit it. So the reason we're having Jeff on, and the reason Eric is not at this point, Eric's at a game on the backfields. Uh, we wanted to talk about international draft stuff, which Jeff uh, sort of broke the story for with ESPN. Eric and I will sort of talk about it at length after I do sort of an intro with Jeff, but I wanted, since he broke the story, and this is still in sort of the realm of rumor and innuendo and talks and, you know, things being characterized as such, I figured we would have him on to sort of tell us what we know and what we, you know, what we think may happen, and then we can go with all the speculation from there. So why don't you give us the quick rundown of uh, what we know at this point? Man, it's all still so speculative, so I, I want to be careful to say, like, what is is reality? I'll, I'll start off with just the very the, the most simple stuff here. Uh, the the key is Major League Baseball really 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 wants an international draft, and 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 they have been on this mission for coming up on like twenty years now to get one put into place. And it was my car beeping at you there. Did you hear that? Hey, we got that. You sound like an unsafe driver. Carry on. Yeah, no, this is this is a disaster. A water bottle just spilled. My car is beeping at me. What a mess. I mean, it's kind of like the, the international realm in Major League Baseball <laughs> because, it, appropriately, it's been a mess for a really long time. And and the mess has been uh, multifold. It has been uh, in corruption, uh, whether it is uh, the Buscones who, who train – uh, these players from the time they're, you know, as young as 10 or 11 years old, uh, offering kickbacks to, to major league, uh, scouts or, or scouting directors, or in some cases even higher. It's performance enhancing drugs being used on, on kids before they're teenagers to get them ready to, to come to agreements with these clubs at 13 years old, even though the contracts don't get signed until they're 16. Up and down, side to side, the entire system is bad right now. And Major League Baseball looks at the draft almost like a panacea. I don't think that it is a panacea. I do think, though, that if, if there is a, a quick and dirty solution 
to getting rid of these signings when when kids or, or these agreements rather when kids are 13 years old a draft does seem to be the best way to address that the question is does it address any of the other institutional issues and sociological issues that pervade this system and and that have have led to to ruinous lives in many cases with the the large large percent of kids who don't make it and and that to me is like the the untold story here and the story that uh once i finally learn spanish fluently i would love to tell and feel like would be a book what happens to the dominican kids and the venezuelan kids who sign for 25 or fifty thousand dollars and don't make it out of the complex like what happens to those kids that's uh, so. Eric and I will go into this in more detail. We can talk about it a little bit. Uh, I talked to a couple of international directors and some international cross checkers and area scouts, just trying to get a, a feel for what they think both will happen. Which the answer is we don't really know, but we're sort of hearing things and what they think should happen. And that what you brought up is one of the points where they're saying, "All right, they can take the like entire bonus pool and like raise it ten or twenty percent, and they can eliminate early deals. They can eliminate the incentives to roid kids up. Uh, they can sort of move the signing age. They can do all of these." Big picture things. And you could say maybe yep. at any given time there's like six or eight like sort of corruption problems. And it seems like MLB has been addressing one or two at a time. And when they'll eliminate right. one, like it seems like identity stuff has become like a much smaller to almost not a problem at this point. And it now yep. moves to 13-year-olds around steroids trying to get early deals done that they can't sign for three years. And like that's sort of where the corruption moves to. And so they were saying what uh, what would then be the, the outcome for these younger players, uh, or like the lower level players? Like do they – um, you know, are they going to get some level of like sort of education or, um, you know, sort of financial literacy, things like this for the guy that signs for 20 K plays in the DSL for three years and gets released. Yep. Uh, if the goal is to pay the players a little bit more as a way to sort of treat them more fairly, are we going to treat everyone more fairly or just act like we're going to treat the first round type players more fairly and just assume that that will, you know, trickle down or that the other stuff doesn't matter. Uh, that is such a great question. And, and, I'm going to answer it in a sort of circuitous way because I was I was lucky enough to go see Wander Franco uh, probably a week ago now in Bowling Green. And Wander Franco is is he going to be number one on the the updated board? Yeah, once uh, once Tatis and Vlad go off, then yeah, I think he's I think he's actually the next one anyway. So yeah, he'll stay there. Okay. So best prospect in baseball, 18 years old, switch hitting shortstop, power from both sides. Like he's got everything and you know we were we were talking about what life was like and he moved out of his house at 11 years old to play baseball full-time which is as an 11 yeah yeah i i have an 11 year old right and and this i i had i had trouble almost reconciling it the just uh, how lucky I am because he was, you know, I was saying to him, you know, sometimes as a reporter, you, you know, your own experiences get in the way. Uh, But sometimes they're also, I think, really informative and and allow you to ask questions you might not otherwise. And my question to him was, what, you know, did you want to leave home at 11? Because I can't imagine sending my kid off to do something that he's going to do for a living at this age. And he said, yeah. Uh, I was fine with it. I knew I was going to be getting hot meals every night. And and that struck me right there, that what we're dealing with is something that is is so literally foreign 
and figuratively as well to us uh, as as Americans, uh, as baseball fans, that it's it's tough without being there to understand what exactly they're dealing with and how all of these systemic problems relate to one another and what baseball can do. Baseball can baseball has in many cases been a savior for families for uh, for generations of people there, and it and it has brought. Uh, wealth to the island that it never would have seen otherwise. But the fact that it hasn't helped solve those social problems, I think, is a failure by the sport and something that ought to be at the forefront of what it's trying to address. And if you're going to bring an international draft into place, there damn well better be some educational components that go beyond the weekend classes that these kids take and practically sleep through. One of the things I talked to a director about this weekend was... Um, if you think, um, if you want to like compare, like a kid that grew up in the East Cobb program in Atlanta, playing you know travel ball, goes to a you know big college in the SEC, like you know uh-huh. lives in a three hundred thousand dollars house in the suburbs, that whole thing, the idea of giving away forty percent of your draft bonus for you know someone to be your coach seems insane because they can afford to pay a couple hundred, couple thousand dollars here and there. The right. kid gets better, the, the, the family maintains the upside, and then if that guy could eventually you know turn into Mike Trout and sign for five hundred million dollars, you know whatever it is. And in Latin America, uh, and this director used specifically the idea of Venezuela, he goes, you know, there's reports of like 10, 11, 12-year-old kids going into academies, and they don't sign until 16, and, you know, that, you know, the the guys that own these academies, like the Buscones, are sort of, you know, buying shares of them from, like, Little League coaches and, like, stuff like that, and that, like, seems pretty gross, but in Venezuela, it's like uh, the promise of never signing, never playing pro ball, but just getting, you know, like you're saying, like hot meals and like some instruction and something to do all day rather than going and working in the sugarcane field, which is what happens with most kids in the Dominican if they're not playing baseball at that age, where like yep. ed- education isn't an option. It's not that they're not doing it. Like they don't really have the option to do it. Um, taking 30 or 40% of their upside is like the only option they have. And you could say that there's like a power imbalance or they're being predatory because these Buscones have money uh, and then the, the kids don't. But in America, yeah, that would be predatory. But in Latin America, in many places, especially in Venezuela and a lot of cases in the Dominican, this is like a lifeline to possibly get paid. And then you look at the deals that Albies and Acuna signed, and it's that same mentality following through. Not right or wrong, uh-huh. but they're, but like the difference between the kid playing high school in East Cobb in a $300,000 house and playing travel baseball and Acuna signing for 100 k out of Venezuela is so different. <laughs> it's no wonder that the education level, the financial literacy – um, the way that they make decisions about contracts and, you know, the way that they sort of handle it, looking after their family members, things like that. Like, that's what the difference is between those two. Like, on the field, they are seemingly the same, but that's the difference. And I don't think the Players Association cared about it until now the precedents for contracts are lower. Right. And so now they care about it. And MLB sees it as, well, you know, people are kind of getting taken advantage of. We'd like to fix some of it, but, like, I don't think they're equipped or motivated to fix all of it. Uh, and so you kind of wonder where this will land and who's going to get left out or where the corruption will let, will exist because it's obviously not all going to get fixed this time. Yeah, I mean, it's a really, really hard problem and and something that is going to take uh, not weeks, not months, not years. This is this is a decade-long thing that they need to do. But, but Major League Baseball, it's interesting. They've taken very moralistic perspectives on things lately. Like, let's look at the Cuban situation right they just hired a lobbyist who is involved you know who's been involved uh in the government uh in cuban relations for years and their their tack the the league's perspective on this is we want to stop human trafficking now 
is that a cover for what the the real story it, you know it might be i don't know i mean maybe they do want to stop human trafficking yeah, there's multiple and, benefits at the very yeah, least yeah that that would that would be great but if they are going to to be a a morally superior organization then they need to put their money where their mouth is on education i think if you go down to latin america and and these buscones understandably are angry at the early deals that are happening and they're angry because that means they have to bring kids into their academies at 10 11 and 12 and don't get paid for five years i mean think about the lottery tickets that that they're they're placing they're they're placing bets on these kids that they're going to grow that they're going to mature that they're going to be good that they're going to love the game all these different elements to it i think they don't want to do that at that young of an age either because it's such a crapshoot like i look at my son's team right now i don't know who's going to be any good I don't know who's going to grow. I, you know, you just don't know these things. And so from a business perspective for them, it's really difficult to, to rationalize bringing in kids at younger and younger ages uh, when you just don't know what they're going to be. Uh, did you happen to see the Players Association response to your report? I think I did, but I forgot what it said. <laughs> uh, it was a version of they're not real happy with this development, and uh, they sort of advised the trainers who were having meetings with MLB that the CBA can't be changed unilaterally, that you don't need to negotiate this because we'll handle it. Right. And, and the, their point, which I don't think is completely incorrect, is that the Players Association is aware, which I have to imagine they were before this, that there's deals being made with kids at 13 and 14 years old, which is against the rules, but MLB has told the team specifically, we will not enforce this. We don't see this as a rule that needs to be right. enforced, which begs the question, like, well, then why not not make it a rule? Uh, but now they're using... <laughs> Now they're using this, like, turning a blind eye to a rule that they don't want to enforce as the reason to push for a draft. It makes you wonder, was there some Machiavellian plan on MLB's part to sort of put all the pieces in place to then have the leverage to be able to push toward this thing that they wanted, but, like, weren't able to pull off 10 years ago? I mean, look, the people who run Major League Baseball are really smart. So I'm not going to put anything past them when it comes to, uh, you know, when it comes to playing three-dimensional chess. Um, I, I'd like to think as a human being that that is not the case and that the, they're not so money hungry that they wouldn't do this. But at the same time, I understand that the, uh, you know, the DR in Venezuela have, have sort of been thorns in their side. And yet we look at the minor leagues now and what are 50% of players Latin American. Yeah. It's getting up there. Yeah. I mean, it's a staggering amount of kids that we're dealing with here and uh for them for them to for them to not enforce the rules uh as they are currently said it's listen it's difficult to enforce them and i think that's what they're you know that's what they're leaning on at this point like we, we can't prevent conversations uh or or maybe if we can uh how do we enforce them what kind of enforcement uh you know how many more people would we have to hire to enforce this how do you prove uh, the, an early deal do you have to have right <laughs> yeah i mean the whole thing needs to be rewritten and and what needs to happen is the buscones need to be involved in this because they are simply too large a part of the process to cut out that at this point no matter how much major league baseball wants to do it it's almost uh, i almost look at it similarly as i do to perfect game you know, Perfect Game has insinuated itself so deeply into the development process in baseball that getting rid of it right now is almost an impossibility. Uh, no matter how much Major League Baseball wants to take over the youth development process in the United States, it, it's a really harrowing task to do so. 
Yeah, well, that would be the further question for for this. Is this step one and step two is to any player with pro potential gets brought into an MLB academy and they build academies all over Latin America and almost, you know, try to version, try to do a version of nationalizing and cutting out the Buscones completely? Because that would, you know, we're on the trajectory where that could be the next move, but I, I yep. would guess that this is probably, we're going to settle somewhere around here. There's not another big move after this. No, and and look, I, I hope that they do this judiciously because there are a lot of people who are really pissed off right now, <laughs> like down in Latin America. They they do not want the draft, and and they don't want the draft. I think in in many cases for selfish reasons, um, but but they are intransigent in their in their positions there. And the reason that the the system we have right now is in place is because in many ways of that intransigence. Let's remember the last time the collective bargaining agreement was being negotiated, MLB was pushing for an international draft. There was a handful of players who were really, really vocal in opposing it because whether it was their friends, maybe even their Buscones who, who didn't want it, they wanted to stand up against that. And when they stood up against it, what did we end up with? We ended up with a hard cap. And when you end up with a hard cap, you look a couple years out and you can say, I know I'm going to have X amount of money. Well, I might as well just just go and spend it right now and, and get the players that I want. And that is why the early deals have, have become so, you know, there's been such a proliferation of them. Yeah, there's no there's no venue for the teams to decide to spend $10 million in the year where they want to spend $10 million. So the way they can create value is by locking the guys up earlier and earlier if they think they're better scouts than everyone else. So it's like this, this almost seemed like an inevitable um, way to keep costs down. But then I don't have the numbers in front of me, but like I want to say it was close to two hundred million dollars was spent the last year before the hard caps, and then the hard caps Correct. imposed it at like one hundred and twenty or something. I want to say like it was it was it was it was one hundred fifty. Yeah. I mean, it's it it's, was much lower than the market basically said. This yeah. is how much a market of players is worth, and then MLB said, "All right, we're going to make you spend a lot less than that." Yeah, I mean, look, it's still only seventy five percent of what they've gotten, and I think if, and it's still if, much less than the draft, which is another point people bring up. Like, oh, why should it even be different? Yeah, it's gross how much different less it is than the draft. And I understand that with the draft, you're talking about at minimum 17-year-old players, majority, like vast, vast majority, probably 98% or 18 plus, right? Yeah. And so we're dealing with much more known commodities at that point. Yeah, they're better but, investors, but that, so they should cost more at some level. Yeah, uh, but but should they, you know, should they be a hundred million dollars more? Because that's that's literally what it is. Yeah, that's 200, not that much better of an investment. I believe there was two hundred sixty million dollars spent on drafted players last year, uh, and I think the I think for this J two period, there uh, there's a hundred sixty six million dollars available for teams to spend, and usually they spend, you know. 95 plus percent of that but at the same time uh it is not a hundred million dollar difference and and you wonder okay if if you were to up the signing age in latin america to 18 or or to 17 and change how much would that affect things and and would it have a positive or negative effect yeah one scouting director i talked to we basically said if they we don't know that this is part of the plan but if they were to change uh the signing age to 18 
and have like January through July too, like an extensive you know uh, games every week. All the top players are playing against each other. Yep. You get all the tracking yep. data. At that point, then the level of information in terms of like an ROI and how much you know about the player is very comparable to a high school player. And then at that point, the spending should be comparable because the sort of investment of you know what you're getting for your money is comparable. I don't know if all that's going to happen, yeah. but that would be had to argue that they're on the same footing and the difference would then be the level of sort of education and leverage to go to, you know, Vanderbilt or whatever. Like that would have to be reconciled in some way, but if if that were to happen, then the bonuses should be almost the same. Yeah, and the bonuses listen, like Major League Baseball is is cognizant that the bonuses need to improve if there's any chance of an international draft. And I think that they're ready to spend more money internationally uh, if that's the case. It would need to be hard cap, though. And every every slot would, would need to be, if you get drafted here, you are going to make X amount of money to sign. And you can choose whether or not to sign, but this is going to be the dollar amount that you get uh, for for being picked here. And, I and that, 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 is, that is what would prevent theoretically the pre-draft deals from happening or or from Buscone being an acting a bad faith agent or you know taking out you know, I mean we've actually there's rumors this has happened in the draft that a certain agent isn't happy sorry advisor isn't happy that a team you know takes a player without calling ahead of time and then changes his advice to the player and tells him not to sign so that he can punish that team like that has happened in the draft um before I'm, I'm- Unquestionably, and there is some thought that uh, in Latin America that you have these uh, Buscones who you know might have some uh, the, the players good not as their number one um, priority, and so then if they're negotiating the deal every now and then they'll bring in an American agent, pay him an additional cut to negotiate a deal. If you then have the hard slotting, then these guys are just trainers and coaches essentially, and I feel feel like that sort of solves like one small problem. And then if the kids have the option to uh, you know just not sign, re-enter the draft the next year. That'd be an additional thing, and then if I think the the last part of that would be if the teams can trade picks, because if you know a team is locked in at seven million dollars for the or whatever it is for the number one pick, and they don't think anyone's worth that, like they should be able to get out of it. Uh, and then that would also, was, I think, something me and Eric will talk about, Eric and I, um, that if we then do all of those things, those are all things that could happen in the draft, and this could be sort of how the Atlantic League is being used for you know the uh, petri dish for rules changes this could be hey july 2 the tv show got some decent ratings because people are trading picks and we have tons of video and we have experts talking about them and there's like you know coverage and people care and there's you know draft rumors and whatever now that we all we have like a a test case to see that this has like some level of return for us that now the draft broadcast will be an actual asset yeah you, you just pointed out the issue with hard slotting too i mean it's something that i think the nfl runs into a little bit there are going to be weaker years right and if it's if it is a weaker year, do you really want to be locked into paying a kid X amount of money if you don't think that he's worth that? And and I listen, when it's all said and done, the likelihood of of it being a negative value proposition is extremely small because the the value that uh, that teams are getting on Latin American players right now still are uh, you know the multiple is just so enormous like yeah i mean what's you know wander franco signed for 3.85 million if you were to put a value on wander franco's career right now what would it be i have Uh, a number in my head i'm curious what yours is i don't have it in front of me but i believe uh that level of prospect in our last sort of update on that methodology was somewhere in like the 60 to 90 million range for the first six years I think I, I think that is like woefully undervaluing him. 
Hold on, I'm I'm actually pulling it up to see. All right, what what do you think it would be? I think Wander Franco for the first, and let's do seven years because let let's yeah. be realistic. Yeah. There's absolutely no way that the Rays are gonna bring him up before that because it's the Rays, um, and and because of just how good he is. Um, I think we're talking uh, a minimum 150 million dollar player. I mean, what would Shohei Otani have have signed for? He yeah, would have gotten 200 on the free market, right? Uh, definitely would have been well over 100, and his was a little bit different because he was older and he had played in the MPB, so a little additional information. But yeah, it's not it's not markedly different. All right, I pulled up our, our research from Craig Edwards has a 70 position player, which is what he would be if he was number one prospect in baseball at 112 million. Um, okay, yeah, which, which you yeah it, you could it's, argue it's, it's actually 150, yeah, but it's definitely over 100. It's easy nine figures. I mean, yeah. easy nine figures. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's about right. And we've done some research that says that the number one pick in the draft, if you take out the signing bonus, is somewhere in that fifty to sixty, seventy million dollar range. And then sometimes those guys can sign and pretty quickly be, you know, close to a hundred million dollar asset if they end up being the top prospect in baseball. So there's obviously still a lot of um, surplus value in that area. Uh, we'll let you go in a minute. I have two quick questions before you go. Uh, one is, where do you think this goes next? Do you think there is a time horizon? There's been some chatter from the people I talked to that they think. Um, it could that the first aim was for this to happen in 2020, but that making agreements with Mexico and the Asian federations is the thing that will hold it up to being maybe further in the future, like 21 or 22. I think this will be discussed in collective bargaining negotiations, which are going to be happening in the next upcoming months. Uh, but I, 2020, I don't think there is any chance whatsoever because i think teams have teams have deals already kylie like (laughs) that's exactly what the directors i talked to said they said hey if you ever hear that it's likely that a certain year will be the year let me know so i can pull out of my deals (laughs) yeah exactly exactly i think 2022 is probably the likelier time so we're gonna have a lot of time to discuss this i'm gonna go down to the like one of the things i really want to do is go down to the dr and write the real story from the ground, what's happening down there. Yeah, and it sounds like while you're writing it, maybe right when it's changing. Um, and then the the last question would be, what does Elmo think about this? <laughs> really? <laughs> hey, I take all the low-hanging fruit here. That's what we're known for. <laughs> uh, like, do I, do I have to, or can I opt out? You, you can opt out. Uh, you can take a rain check, and then we'll, we'll come back to you later. I mean, uh, can we like when we're doing a ridiculous podcast? You really don't bring me on for ridiculous stuff, though. <laughs> That's like true. last time, yeah. we, last time we talked, it was about sign stealing and, and technology and cameras. This time, it's it's about like third world countries and and their contribution to the to the greater sport at large. Like we're gonna have to do a totally ridiculous podcast. At which point, uh, Elmo will will arrive. All right. You're on the record. Uh, we're going to hold you to it. And the next time I think of something ridiculous, it'll probably be in about 10 minutes. Uh, I'm going I'm to need a voice memo from you. We let Elmo thinks about it. Uh, do, you have, do you have any plugs? I mean, how, how do you handle these things now? Uh, watch baseball tonight on Sunday. Read ESPN.com and ESPN the magazine as long as it's still around. Patronize uh, the four letter as much as you possibly can because uh, we dig baseball and I think we do a really good job of covering it. And if you see him on a plane, definitely go sit next to him and talk to him. Please don't do that. I'll have my headphones. I, you know, it was funny. I uh, I was at my younger son's soccer game earlier this week, and I, I ran into a guy who I had met last year, and he was like, you know, I think I saw you on a flight to Los Angeles earlier this year, but uh, or, or late last year, but 
you had your headphones on and you really didn't seem like you wanted to talk. And I was like, that is a good read of the situation, my man. <laughs> That's exactly what I was doing and what I was hoping would happen. <laughs> yeah, and the best part is there definitely was nothing being piped into my headphones. I just wear my headphones as as a as a shield, as as a safety valve, uh, as a, as as my conduit to rudeness. Like I'm not sure exactly how to how to phrase it, but uh, it's like the GM yeah. walking through the lobby of the winter meetings with the phone taped to his ear, even though there's no one on the phone. Oh, there's no question about it. I actually practice those conversations. It's great. Like sounding like you're talking to somebody. Like you have to have a, a specific amount of time that you're pausing in between the words. Uh, it's it's really uh, it's really an art. I feel yeah. I feel like the giveaway is when someone's on a fake call. They say the word yeah or yes a lot. That's, uh, you know, I've, I've taken that into account in the past and I've wiped that from my methodology. So you just, you're constantly uh, correcting people instead of answering questions. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 not like that. No, no. Listen to me. You're like, wow, he wouldn't be in a fake phone call sounding like that much of a dickhead. Sometimes you have to yell. Yeah. Like just, just be like, no, that's not right. Have you ever been tempted if you see someone that you think is on a fake call to then call them and see if their phone starts ringing and all of a sudden they just have to run out of the room? Oh, I mean, before I, I will, I will admit to this, and and I don't know what this says about me. Probably nothing very good, but I will admit to having told my wife uh, and friends as well about a specific time they need to call me because I'm going to be in the middle of a conversation I don't want to be in, and I need an excuse. It's really mean that when we went to dinner, that you're now admitting on the podcast that you did that to me. Listen, I'm sorry, man. It happens. <laughs> SOS, terrible date. Get me out of here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks for coming on, Jeff. We'll uh, we'll talk to you next time we have something stupid. Uh, sounds great. See you. <laughs> All right, and now uh, we're welcoming Eric. He doesn't get a formal intro because this isn't the beginning of the podcast, so sorry. Um, That's okay. But I, but I think the real question from the first part of the podcast is, was my scoop joke that bad? I think I – I guess I have probably warped your sense of humor. So I don't know. I thought it was tongue-in-cheek, you know, like ironically bad, you know, purposefully. And so I thought it was funny for that reason. And Jeff seemed to take it at like face value. Um, yeah, purposely so, bad. Let's go with that. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> I just give you more credit for the, like the way that you you read that stuff is is funny to me because it seems ref- self referential or aware in some way. So what I wanted to do with you in sort of, you know I guess with the Jeff he sort of uh, outlines what had happened and sort of how he, or what has been discussed or kind of where things stand and where we kind of think they'll go and sort of the first level of you know what the reactions are and sort of the ramifications. But what I wanted to do with you is kind of walk through like each of the groups that could be affected by this and like what specifically their discussions are. Um, so the first one was the the teams, which I think depending on who you ask, there's anywhere from five to ten of them. The answer is probably like six or seven of teams that are very good in Latin America, have a ton of infrastructure, big staffs. Uh, typically, uh, they will sign guys uh, that tend to be near the top of our rankings for less than guys that are lower on our rankings and just tend to be more efficient. You can kind of tell these teams are, I think we've said it's sort of like, you know, Yankees, Indians, Dodgers, Red Sox. Um, There's a couple more in there. Man, Cleveland's group uh, in extended again is, is crazy again, man. 
Yeah. Uh, like what was like half the Yankees list was basically like teenagers and yeah. many of them were Latin players and yeah, there's just teams with a track record. And I would say the Red Sox were probably toward the end of that, you know, maybe that five to seven area. And then they took the director from the Mets, Chris Becerra, who was uh, seen as one of the better guys in the yeah. industry. Um, so they are, I guess, seen as descending even. So whoever, whoever those teams are, um, how they see this, um, these potential changes uh, would be that like sort of their advantage, if you say, because like they're 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 all very aware that like oh we have the chance to sign the guys that you rank fifth, tenth, and twelfth um, and get under our pool, and other teams for their pool will sign twenty, twenty five, and twenty eight. Like we're aware right. that that keeps happening over and over. We even think they're better than you do. Like we can sign, you know, some of these teams will sign three of their top six players or whatever it is what they have internally. Um, right, they're comfortable with the status quo. The team's most comfortable exactly. with it. And they as have, far as ops are concerned. And they've invested a lot of uh, time and money and developing a process to uh, be good at how the system is now. So obviously any change to it will be sort of undermining what they're doing. But this specific change is essentially uh, raising bonuses, which I'm sure they don't really care that much about because it sounds yeah. like it'd be 10 or 20%, not that big of a difference. But then the idea would be you can't lock guys up early. Um, and so while things are still hard capped and you can't lock guys up early, the advantage would then be that when this whole time is compressed, so you have to make the decision on draft day, let's call it July 2nd, I would imagine it still would be, um, you now have from like, you know, um, January to July and everyone's getting very similar information from, you know, the same MLB sanctioned events and all this sort of stuff. Like it becomes much more like scouting high school players where it's much harder to separate yourself. And then the huge staff you have to go see all the best 13 year olds and identify, oh, this guy's really good at 13. We want to be able to make a decision when he's 15. So we need a lot of reports like that is much less important now, but still, obviously you want to be doing that. Um, and so the issue for them would be they lose some of their competitive advantage that they've paid to sort of build up. And then also there could be a case where they have to sort of lay off some of their better staff Um because essentially you'll be spending more money on players and there's less of a need for scouts. Not necessarily that you have to lay off scouts, but like it could go in that direction. So that's sort of where those sorts of teams, which is obviously a very small group of about a half dozen of them. Um, there's a lot of teams in the middle. And then I'll let you talk about like how you would perceive the teams that are in sort of save a buck mode where they don't have a big staff and they like the idea of basically having a bureau do a bunch of legwork for them and they can just show up January 1st and get, you know, comparable amount of information to what we have, but then analyze it in their own way. Like, how do you feel like they would look at this? Well, I, I don't know. I suppose if you're bad at, at what is currently going on, then you, that you'd like it to change. Um, yeah, it would change. The, the bang for the buck aspect on international signings is just such a huge aspect of it now and became an even bigger aspect of it when the pools became hard-capped. Uh, and so the teams that are just na- not naturally good at that uh, are, are way behind and if there were yeah, a compressed scouting environment like if it were just like area codes except with July 2 kids uh, yeah you don't need to have this like intricate uh, socially geared network that has all these you know connections with the trainers that you uh, leverage into information and and deals and uh, so yeah, I mean like of course they'd they'd rather have this sort of thing. I think the the difference between I mean this is always changing all the time too, right? Like if if someone new is hired to to run uh, you know, Baltimore's international department, like that team's behavior is going to change. They're behind from several standpoints, even though there's been a changing of the guard there because you have to have time to set up like an infrastructure and uh, get some tread with, you know, some of these the other aspects of it that aren't just player evaluation. Um, and so like it's kind of in flux who cares about what because different people running 
things, new people running things, the, the way they like to go about it is going to change. Uh, and I think, especially on the front office side now, best practices are, are permeating through the industry uh, much more quickly now. I think uh, there's like been a lot of front office turnover lately uh, and different ways of thinking are becoming more pervasive. And so I think that uh, for that reason, teams are going to be a little bit more dynamic anyway. Uh, and I just think that the teams that are already good at this will be also be the ones who find ways to this is probably the wrong verb, exploit the, you know, the new rules in ways that, uh, that favor them further than the other teams in the future anyway. Like I just think the teams that are good at it will stay good at it because they're the best at thinking about it, and the ones who aren't will stay bad at it because they're the worst. That's one way to put it. And I would say also the one sort of open question here that if we're going to assume, like say 2022, new CBA, that this will be what gets instituted. It's unclear if, for instance, MLB will use some of that hundred plus million dollars they got from all the overages to build a giant academy for ten million dollars in, in the Dominican and say, "Hey, on January one, the players that we, in consultation with the teams, deem are the top one hundred players, they move into this like you know um, real world style house and they live here for the next seven months. They're playing in games every day. You're getting all the TrackMan and stats." Uh, right. And you're gonna like every team can have one coach in the building, and like we're gonna sort of nationalize this part of it. And if you're big, if we deem you a top three round guy, and we can sort of send people out when they get injured, send guys in when they get discovered. We're bringing kids from Venezuela that like don't have access to like food and stuff. Like we're doing them a solid, and they get to essentially get ready for pro ball. We can give them financial literacy. We can give them English classes. Like they, you can see how they would perform in this setting. And so uh, at that point, then it almost becomes, especially if they move the HD18, which I don't know if they will or won't, but that's another option they have. If they do that, this is what I said with Jeff, like at some point, like that gets to be a comparable investment to a high school player because you're getting almost the same amount of information. Right. You can go watch them as underclassmen at their Buscone and get an idea of what's going on and do go into the home, do all that stuff. And then like starting in January, like the sort of quote spring happens and then everybody gets to go see them. Uh, whereas it's like a little more scattershot before that. And you get all of the sort of uh, all the sort of information you would be getting on an amateur high school player, and then that would then make the case that you would have to start paying them more. Which it sounds like MLB is prepared to go down that road, but they still got like a long way to go. Um, so obviously, that will the specifics of how that plays out will dictate how the sort of um, cost cutting teams versus the in, uh, invest in infrastructure teams will in, um, see this. Because uh, there's like one way to go down a road where you cut the Buscones out completely, which I don't think they're going down. And then the question becomes, it's more like Puerto Rico. Like, oh, okay, now no one has any incentives to train a 12-year-old to then sell him to a Buscone. And so now like the whole talent base drops off because there's not the incentives aren't in place. And MLB thinks they're going to train all 5,000 kids that sign every year. And it's just like, that's not going to work. So like, I, I think that's why they're not going to go down that road is like that seems to... Um, that seems to be like the logical extreme of what we're talking about. And I don't think anybody wants it to go there. I don't know that I necessarily agree with – and I, I probably wrote about this at the time too, about uh, Puerto Rico and the, the lack of incentive uh, by tying those kids into the draft instead of on the international market. And of course things changed since then, right? Like you guys talked about that uh, before I came on, like the bonus differences between – the pool differences in totality – uh, internationally compared to the draft like it, there is a huge gap there and so now you could argue that it's just advantageous to be unless you're one of the top few talents uh internationally like it's just advantageous to be subject to the draft now uh rather than an, an international amateur which is like not the case as recently as uh, five years ago like when did lucius fox sign three years ago yeah um so yeah i mean things 
the, things have been changing so rapidly over the last few CBAs that uh, like there's not really there's a it's hard to follow the thread and and really have feel for uh, what might happen next. And yeah, the it's interesting that you mentioned raising the age. And I don't know that baseball, uh, Major League Baseball, will just decide to pay the players anymore. Like I, I do think that this is going to be. I think both sides should be prepared for for the international draft stuff to fall either way. Um, during CBA negotiations, like it'll either be something that MLB takes advantage of as they have in the past. Like this, that's how we got hard slotting. Um, or if it will be something that they, they give back on, uh, in exchange for not giving in other areas. Uh, all the, you know, there's a lot of fervor about paying minor leaguers. There's even more about, uh, you know, service time manipulation and pre-arb salaries. Uh, and so I think that focus will be on that. And this, the international draft, it will be to a lesser degree, uh, and that this might be where where MLB still is. I don't I don't know that they're ready to quote unquote do the right thing here. I think this is still an area where they want to leverage as much as possible. It's just not as much a part of the public consciousness here as it is as as other things are. Yeah, I think it's probably a two CBA like sort of shift at least, and probably more like three if I had to guess, which typically are five year cycles. So it seems like it's ten to fifteen years to sort of quote fix things. And the idea of like, you know, the various problems that are here, whether it's, you know, Buscones or steroids or ages or identity or uh, kids having like sort of a career after baseball, like the gap between the draft and international, like all these various things that we'd like to see solved. And it sounds like the union would like to see solved MLB ideally in the right scenario would like to see solved. Like everyone's sort of incentivized to find this thing and they're just going to fight over the particulars. I think it'll take a while to dial it in. But at least we saw in last year, as Jeff mentioned, um, some of the high profile Latin players didn't like where things were going and said, no, not a draft. And they were probably fighting for the wrong thing, but their heart was in the right place. And so I think now that that, like that voice is being heard because like the joke had almost been like, oh, if you're not, you're not, if you're not a professional player, you're not in the union. So they'll sell out the draft in July two players to get whatever they can for a pro player. And now I think they're at least aware that if you sort of hard cap both amateur markets, it eventually ends up impacting the big leagues. When you have a bunch of, you know, 22 year old stars making no money that then take below market extensions, like eventually it impacts it. And so I think it's now at least, on the table to discuss and i think we're like on a road to sort of fixing these issues which 10 years ago i don't feel like anybody cared about any of this stuff yeah i would agree with that and so all right so we said teams it'll vary how how they feel about uh a draft team to team uh, although there's a chance i think we can agree that the teams who are just better at this currently will find a way to be better at whatever's next because they're better at it because they're smarter yeah, they're winning head-to-head, and they also have an advantage in terms of staff. And if they have similar staffs, they're probably still better like evaluators head-to-head. So, yeah, I think they're going to continue winning, but it will be sort of different table stakes, and everyone will be sort of adjusting on the fly. Uh, all right, so next, I guess, would be the amateur international players themselves. So you can look at it in terms of um, sort of kids that are getting food on the table versus kids who are not, so sort of a socioeconomic one. And you can also see it as high middle and low bonus players like will they get paid more or less and then there's a bunch of like sort of sub questions within those groups um it sounds like if you're gonna be raising bonuses obviously the higher bonus players will get paid a little bit more and i think the more structured the international program becomes where you can take an amateur cross checker that does domestic send him down there for a month to go see three events and then say hey this guy that we should take with the fifth overall pick is actually really similar to this guy who's a 17 year old we took with the fifth overall pick for the same amount of money 
Like, you can compare that guy, whereas right now, if you wanted to do that, you'd be sending a guy who evaluates 18 to 22-year-olds and having him go watch a 14-year-old who doesn't know the market and, like, how much this player's worth and you can't really compare them. Like, that doesn't really happen. Um, and so, obviously, that, that high bonus guy, his, his market is going north, and so his sort of, you know, quality of life, his family, all of those things are getting better. The middle and low bonus players... So probably I'm guessing that the draft internationally would be something like five rounds. And then anyone who doesn't get drafted can then sign outside of the draft for, you know, 100K or below. And if it fits in your, you know, it'll be something like that. And so the low bonus players, I think, will probably get a little less attention than they do currently, but not, you know, not that much less. And the whole pool will be going up. So I'd probably call that a wash for them. And the middle bonus guys, I think, might get more money because if you hard slot like these five rounds have to get paid exactly this amount there's probably bargains to be had if a guy doesn't have a great agent or doesn't get, you know, publicized enough or agrees to a deal too early. And now that guy, when he, you know, becomes the, you know, 45th or 50th best player, he gets locked into a million plus. So that guy probably gets helped a little bit. So in terms of bonuses, like it sounds like all three of those groups will be doing a little bit better, if not the same. Is that how you read it? Yeah. Uh, I think, yes, there's probably a precise calculus that can be done and say, okay, you know, traditionally, what do the well? First of all, like the, a draft in general, in my opinion, is like un-American, <laughs> and it is just it is just weird. I mean, I suppose we're not dealing with Americans, but like uh, the <laughs> this business draft is literally the, not American. <laughs> the business, but the business, you know, Major League Baseball is an American business, um, and it would just be weird, you know, if you graduated, you got you know your CPA, um, and congratulations, like you're going to go work for this accounting firm in Minnesota. They drafted you. Like it doesn't really make sense. <laughs> Like, oh, Minnesota, thing. oh, man. <laughs> it's not a thing any of the rest of us would accept with our job. It is just a thing that is a reality because of collective bargaining, uh, which has yes. its problems, as Kylie just alluded to. But um, so, yeah, like other – a draft is gross. Um, but, you know, assuming that one will be implemented, I, I think, yes, in general, um, I agree with your logic. I think uh, if I'm a player and, like, what do I want uh, – would I rather as I can now for, you know, let's say it is less money ultimately, uh, but pick my employer versus someone who uh, is inept at player development drafts me for $300,000 more of a bonus? Like, which would I rather do? Um, I, I think the gap I talked team to a director about this specific instance, so I'm curious where you land on this. Okay. So, like, I think the gap team to team in player dev, if I were. Uh, a smart kid or had a smart trainer uh, who knows who's good at it and who's not like I would rather land with one of those teams for uh, you know 250 500k less than go to somewhere that I thought did not do a good job with player dev like uh, if the goal is to reach the big leagues um, we know what minor league pay is right now and again like your answers to these questions could change depending on how all this stuff shakes out but if minor league pay is what it is and I'm either a 750k guy for a bad player dev team or a 500k guy for a good player dev team. Like I think I'd rather go to the good player dev team. Yes. So I yeah I was talking uh, to someone who works for you know one of those teams that we identified as on on the higher side or at least sympathetic to those ideas if, if you want to quibble. Um, and he was saying that because these uh, international players cannot be committed to Vanderbilt and live in a you know big house in the suburbs and feel fine turning down a million dollars if they want to if they don't feel like they're being treated fairly you have to give them the option to not sign. And he was like, well, the problem then is you re-enter the draft as a 17-year-old. You're going to be less attractive to me at the very top of the draft because all things being equal, I'd like to get the kid earlier. And if it's a comparable player, I'd probably want the younger one. 
And I go, yeah, but if you get toward the back of the first round and it's like total shot in the dark 16-year-old with two tools you like or a 17-year-old that you've been seeing play for an extra year, like then that guy seems more attractive there. And he goes, yeah, that's true. So if a guy feels like he's a late first rounder, you know, top 30 bonus and he gets off, you know, gets taken 60th overall uh, and said, and, you know, does, opts to not sign and re-enter the draft for a year and is okay with that, um, that's the option he gets. Um, the... The element, and I alluded to this with Passan, I think the way to solve this is, one, you can take out the Buscones and the agents completely by making it hard slotting. We obviously don't love the idea of then, you know, if we're, if we're looking at it compared to the draft. If you do a hard slot, like you get taken here, you get exactly this bonus and from this team. We don't love the idea of a draft in general. I'd like for the draft in the America, the domestic draft, to just be every team gets the same amount of money, but there's no picks. You just bid on every player. Um, and every, you know, player can pick if he wants to accept the bid or not, or, you know, whatever it is, like, that's probably, like, the most, it's like doing an auction draft for your fantasy, like, it's it's technically better, everyone has a chance at every player in some way, although I guess if you, if a player signs for 5 million and the Red Sox have 4 million, I guess they don't have a chance at him, but, you know, you get the idea. So in a way, moving from that system to a draft internationally is not good, but there are some things that are solved along the way in terms of uh, there's no incentives to give steroids to a 13-year-old. Um, there's no incentives to not have a guy play in a game because then if they're going to get drafted high, they're going to play in all these MLB games. There's not going to be you know deals with 13-year-olds that then you might want to pull out of because they don't develop the right way, like whatever it is. Like in this sense, it's like solving some problems. Um, and so if you do a hard slot and then the kid can opt not to sign, that then means that the kid can do... You know, hey, and I'm not going to Vanderbilt as my leverage, but I can say, hey, uh, me and my Buscone and sort of my camp, um, we don't want to – I'm a pitcher. I don't want to play for these five teams. I don't think you're going to develop me well. I think I'm more likely to get hurt. I think I'm less likely to make it to the big leagues. I don't want to play for you. If you pick me, I'm not going to sign. You're going to get a comp pick and I have to wait a year to get a player. So pick somebody else. And that would be their – you know, I guess that would then introduce the aspect of an agent to then – tell the team, this guy's not interested in playing for you. And I think the way to then get around that would then be if you make – let's, let's say it's a five-round draft. If every pick is tradable, then if, say, a team that has bad player dev, in quotes, this player is the top player on the board, he does not want to play for them, they should be able to trade out of that pick. Or if a team, you know, let's say Baltimore, maybe they still don't want to you know go whole hog into the system or they just don't think the top player is worth the slot of $6 million or whatever it is, they can then trade it for a whole mess of other picks or minor league players or big leaguers or whatever it is they want to trade it for. You kind of have yeah. to give them the option because I don't feel like you can – it doesn't feel great either from the other side to be forcing a team to give a kid $6 million that they don't want to give $6 million to. Like they have to have an option in this as well. And so that then brings us down the road of, okay, now the kids have an option to either sign or not sign. You could have 17-year-olds playing against 16-year-olds. That then brings in international draft models and the teams that are good can further sort of um, leverage them being good sort of a six or seven month season where you can, everyone can draft these guys on a pretty equal footing. Some teams might have more history. Some teams might have better analysis, but they're all getting similar information. That then means the media and us who would be going down there to see these, these tournaments for these six months, we have comparable information. We're collecting draft rumors and this is this player's do not draft me list. And then all of a sudden you can trade big leaguers for, you know, picks in the July two draft. Like you've now got a TV event, even if you don't know who the players are and you don't understand the process, everybody loves a freaking draft. Um, yeah. And, and this now is a pilot program for if this suddenly gets a lot of attention and you have an asset that is the July two draft broadcast. Now it's like, well, you kind of have to do this for the you know for the guys in college. People actually know who these guys are, um, and that, I think that is a way because I don't think owners want to have trading of picks and like a you know a big um, you know 
uh, event of the draft. But I think if it's proven that this is what people want and this works and it's not appreciably better or worse for the teams and the front office is like it because they all think they're smart. And so this allows them the chance to be smart. And also if, it, you know, somebody like Mike Elias takes over a team, he doesn't like the kind of players in his system. He can essentially trade everybody in his system and get all new players in one year if he does it in the right way. I think everyone likes having the flexibility to do that. And the teams that think they're smarter than the Orioles, like, have the opportunity to take advantage of them. That's what they think is going to happen. So it seems like that would be a... I'm not going to say everyone's going to go nuts for it because um, there's always going to be somebody that loses out in any of these situations. Um, but that seems really positive and goes down a road where you can solve a lot of these problems and not have a lot of downside. Uh, yeah, I think, yeah, this is, and this is where my objectivity starts to wane is because it's like, yeah, this does sound like a lot of fun. <laughs> like the idea of trading, yeah, like trading picks and, you know, immediately teams doing analysis on the value of what these picks would be, uh, as far as it, you know, converting it to other assets and stuff like it would be. So like, what would you rather have? Uh, if someone, if suddenly all the draft picks, uh, in the domestic draft also became tradable, what would you rather have one, one in the 2018 draft or one, one in the 2018 international draft? Like, would you rather have Wander Franco or Casey Mize? You know what I mean? Like it forces, it would force people to consider these questions. And, um, and there would also be incentives to so scout the July 2 kids two years in advance so that if you're trading for a two years in advance pick, like you want to have some idea in the same way that we obviously have 2021 draft rankings. Like you'd want to have some idea of what's coming down the pike and which pick you'd rather have. So what sort of like we're talking about so much physical real estate like infrastructure that would have to you'd have to have, you know, a, a huge academy to uh, like do this sort of thing. And I know teams already have academies that could essentially be co-opted, I suppose, to like do things like this. And I agree with what Jeff said um, about the education aspect of it too. Like that's something that at some point, and I think domestically too, um, as far as scholarships are concerned, like MLB almost at some point has to uh, aid and, and help and uh, make a priority. Um, so yeah, like, I think there's there are so many logistical hurdles, uh, like I can't even really wrap my mind around how you go about solving all of them. I suppose you just throw a ton of money out of it, like you know, Which they Major have. League Baseball. But um, there's a, there's a hundred yeah. plus million dollars that are earmarked for international stuff that they, as far as I know, have not spent anywhere close to ten percent of it. So right, but the like money we, is there. It's I know, but it's just been sitting there. Like, have they really? Do you really anticipate that Major League Baseball has had this level of foresight to like stash the money away for just something? Is it like just there for a rainy day, or do you think that there has been a lot of consideration uh, as to what that money eventually is going to do? And, like you've written about this, like people don't know what we're talking about. Like the dollar for dollar tax on overages during the period of international signing rules that included like you know Yohan Moncada and the Dodgers Cuban class. Like when you had a b- bonus pool that you pay tax on when you went over it. All that money is still just sitting somewhere. Like it was in the CBA that that money would just be used to, I think, advance Major League Baseball's interests internationally. Like it's very vague language. Kylie has written about this. Like we don't know what that money's for, really, where it is, or what it's doing. But we know it's like somewhere over 100 million. I think it's close, closer to like 150 million. So it's like a real amount of money. And there's no evidence. It's not like, oh, we built 75 baseball fields around Latin America. Like there's nothing like that. So it's like, I'm sure they've spent some of it on something, but most of it's basically sitting there. And you could imagine since they've been pushing for a draft for so long that they're like, oh, let's save it for then. And I think one of the better uses for that 
uh, money because like I I have some general ideas of like how much these academies cost. Like they they cost anywhere from three to ten million depending on how nice you want to make them, and they house anywhere from you know thirty to fifty kids. Um, and so if you want to if MLB wants to build one that can hold a hundred kids and have eight fields and just really you know blow it out, I'm sure they could find some plot of land, and I'm sure the government in Dominican would you know want to be a part of that. And you could probably get it done for under twenty mil, and like that would basically be all of the like. And then you'd have, like, you know, three-year runway until this is a real thing. And they already have the infrastructure in terms of, like, you know, par- the partnership program with the Buscones and, you know, trainer, um, you know, sort of the MLB-run games and all the events and stuff. Like, they already have people that, like, sort of know how to run events. And like I say, like, they're, like, the absolute best events. Like, they're run pretty well. Um, but if they know that three years from now we're going to be essentially doing, like, a combine and, like, a league and it's almost like, you know, a, high school teams are essentially made and play and all that sort of thing and versions of the DPL and IPL, um, they've already started going down that road. And I think if you say, hey, we got 20 mil set aside, like, we're going we're gonna to pocket the other 100 mil for whatever else comes up, but we're going to put aside 20 mil to make infrastructure um, to then sort of make an event for you know anybody around the island can come to this thing but we're going to house 100 players or you know whatever it is and you can always you know adjust that and you know make one in other countries or you have multiple ones or whatever it is like that is very doable and i think to get an international draft would be the sort of thing that would make mlb want to do that even if initially they don't want to do it they just want to have everyone travel to a place to have the games i could see that being sort of the solution that makes the most sense so we've talked about teams. We've talked about MLB as a, a business entity. We've talked about the players. Uh, did we talk about the trainers yet? I mean, we sort of like touched on it as we've talked about everything else. Yeah, there was one more thing on the in terms of the kids. Uh, oh, okay. Which was the in in terms of like uh, the example Jeff gave of like the guy that signs for ten thousand dollars plays in the DSL for three years gets released. How are you impacting that guy's life? Because if MLB is like in a general right. sense trying to take like the moral high ground. Uh, discarding that kid like he doesn't matter and he obviously you know there's plenty of like junior college kids that sign for $10,000 and then get released after two years and like those questions aren't asked about that person in America but in these countries like that's a little more of a pressing thing that needs to be addressed Um, can there be some level of oh if you get into an academy there is a base level amount of assistance to get you know placed in a job or you know college scholarship fund or setting you up with uh, vocational training um Various things like that that don't exist that I don't even cost that much money. I think you probably have to have, you know, a number of people on staff to kind of, you know, make sure all of that's happening. Um, and then the idea would be, additionally, if we're talking about more of the higher end player, can you get uh, like maybe a 12 month runway before the kids sign to prepare them for these things? Because we still, you know, not anywhere near as often as we used to. We still hear stories about kids that just like are not ready to play um uh, just in America, they don't know how to order food. They don't know how to have a bank account. Like all these sorts of things that we sort of take for granted here that still happen down there. And a lot of times kids have a boost going for their whole life. They sign and then they get an American agent when they go to America. And like that guy's not necessarily, you know, like doesn't really know like their life situation or where their home is. In a lot of cases, it's just, you know, some guy that read them on our prospect list and they're going to go represent them now. Um, so that whole issue yeah. still needs to be addressed in some way. And I think, I don't think MLB wants to. I think the agents want to find a way to give the kids like a little more of that financial literacy and about um, whether it's contracts or how to save money or, you know, whatever it is. I think there's a, a bridge there that needs to be um, sort of gapped in a way. Although I don't think MLB is necessarily super out of shape about that one. I think it's more the, the agents and the players association. Yeah, that's a difficult situation. It is, 
it's it is one of those things that uh, you even see just like a little bit of on the backfields. Like um, uh, I forget what team the the young man originally uh, played for, but like his he and his brother were both here and were like fringe pro like org guys, basically like probably not even org guys. Uh, this type of player who is just like in the DSL for three years is maybe here in instructional league for a little bit and then he gets released uh, and the two brothers played on two separate teams and the one of them was released uh, and then the other one who played for the Dodgers like I was at the field that day and the Dodgers brought in the new newly released player to like try out and, and pitch and like watching uh, the two brothers like confer with one another before this guy was about to take the mound and like maybe you know his career was was ending basically like it was just you know hard to watch um so there's stories of guys getting released and then like sort of running away and trying to stay in the country when they otherwise would have been sent home like there's there's various things that just kind of like you know hit hit you right in the heart and you're just like there's got to be a better way to do this for these billion dollar companies yeah um so yeah it is it is a problem because this is a uh, – I wonder too uh, – a thing that has sort of been bandied about by um, like people who work for minor league baseball uh, said this to someone I know um, and I think that it's just sort of like a topic of discussion around the backfields is that some level of rookie ball will go away. Like there may be – so that uh, players like that don't exist as much. Uh, you know, like we've talked about this before too. Like you have two AZL teams just so you have two, you know, everyday reps for two shortstops. And like, you know, there's, there's like a minor league talent dilution. There are going to be, I think 22 or 24 AZL teams this year. Um, like not all of these guys are going to make the major league. So right now there are more of these players than we would like. Uh, and I think there's been some discussion about like some level of the minor leagues, uh, going away. Um, and I know there are a lot of minor league facilities across the country. Like it wouldn't make sense uh, or it would be unfortunate for some people if like the Appy league went away uh, or if, you know, the Northwest league or the pioneer league went away. Uh, And for that reason, the logical place people point is like these complex level leagues, the AZL and stuff. Yeah. They don't, Uh, they don't generate any revenue. Right. They don't generate any revenue. There's not, there aren't people working jobs at the AZL. There's not a, you know, there aren't concessions workers or, or people making money, uh, helping people park like none of that stuff is is going on uh, but at the same time like the the facilities in Arizona here like have such a huge geographic footprint like some of these complexes are sprawling across huge tracts of land uh and so like it's good that they're used for something uh, and some of them you know like Tempe Diablo uh the Angels complex there's, you know, local adult league games get played on a lot of their backfields, and Mike Trout and Shohei Otani take BP on these fields, and then these uh, these older dudes get to play baseball on them during the summer when no one is here, and like, so that stuff is good, but not all of them get used that way. So, and also, I'm here, and like, keep playing baseball here, please. Uh, but um, please, please. <laughs> I like seeing Helcris Oliveras uh, 15 minutes from my house. Um, so yeah, like. I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see what happens, but I think that there there could be repercussions throughout the sport, not just in a way that impacts um, the international players, even though those are the only rules that might change. And I would say the last part of this would be obviously what's going on in Venezuela is uh, you know probably oh, outside yeah. the scope for us to understand, but like it's obviously it is yeah it's obviously very <laughs> ugly there. 
And so there's, you know, we've heard some stories about like, oh, a 10 year old got brought into an academy and the justification is, oh, my family can't feed me. I have maybe a chance to sign as somebody when I'm 16 and this guy will take me in and feed me. Like, that's a great deal to me. Um, and Jeff and I talked about this in, in some terms, but the the idea of completely apart from the political stuff or like how, you know, things get solved down there. Um, the idea of setting up a system where MLB can be a little bit more of a shepherd of, you know, putting these kids in a better situation and having them sort of, you know, oh, he's a top 100 prospect. He's going to go through this whole MLB thing. Like, we're going to kind of take him out of here. Like, obviously, there's a little bit of like the, you know, the savior idea, but like also like these kids want equipment and training and food and like not all of them are getting that. And so any any sort of infrastructure that can be built um, to sort of facilitate a draft and sort of through MLB's economic interests um, ends up helping a lot of these kids. And it's not like parts of the Dominican aren't at the same level as parts of Venezuela in terms of, you know, poverty and things like that. Right. Yeah. It's a very complex situation uh, at the socioeconomic level. Like there will be pros and cons to whatever, whatever ends up changing. Because people that have never been down there hear that these guys get 40% of these guys, you know, bonuses for, you know, feeding them and training them for three years. And just like, well, that seems like usurious. It's like, yeah, if it was in America, it would be. But down there, it's, they've given them a lifeline. Um, And that's, you know, people with money are trying to figure out a way to like get the kids a big bonus. Like in a way, it's almost doing charity. (laughs) So it's, it's kind of funny depending on how you decide to look at it. Um, So the last part would then be the Buscones. Um, So obviously some of them do not like having to, because I guess the idea is they want to get kids three, maybe four years before they can sign a contract. And so now because there are verbal deals for 13 and 14 year olds, they're bringing in 10 and 11 year olds and keeping them in their academy for six years. And so obviously if you have, you know, a typical academy can hold maybe 30 kids at a time. Um, you're eating up spots with kids that are going to get paid because you have a verbal deal, but like it's going to take a while. And so from their perspective, if they can go back to getting these kids in their academies when they're 13 and 14 and then keeping them for a year or two and then maybe shuttling them off to MLB for you know six months and then they still get a comparable cut, um, I think they'd rather have that sort of system and as long as MLB doesn't go down the road of you know basically trying to cut the Buscones out completely, which I don't think they would and I think would be a terrible mm-hmm. idea, um, I think this is a better system for the Buscones too, even if they have been told like you don't like a draft and now some of them are saying, well, I think it'll be easier to get a draft. Like it's obviously like a little fraught from their perspective, but like I think in the end this will be a, a better answer for them if it ends up being a version of what we're talking about. Yeah, anything – and maybe the age change would, would be better. Like why did initially – MLB pick age 16 like why was everyone just okay with that at some point like uh it seems like it probably should have been older but um and you could move that age even yeah. further if this guy signed at 18 MLB gets him at 17 you could then go get kids when they're 15 they might actually be somewhat physically mature at that point instead of being 10 uh yeah I don't know I think the interact the interaction between these people and MLB uh is the one that I have like the least amount of feel and confidence in like commenting on i just don't know how this would i think it would vary so so much uh trainer to trainer um that that yeah i I don't know if there's an overarching answer to this like some of them some of the ones that the the bigger independent academies uh would i'm sure work directly with mlb in some capacity um and then others probably would not and i think the benefits for those types of groups i think like you know which trainers i'm referring to right like there's three or four big ones that do not play ball with MLB, and most of the other big ones do to varying degrees. And, yeah, I would definitely say that the the word is escaping me, but uh, Buscones as a whole are not like a voting block where they're all going to say the same thing. Like, they are very diverse. Yeah, so uh, I think that there's 
there's heavy variability there. Um, and yeah, it'll just be one more thing for teams to navigate, I suppose, is uh, who will and won't work with MLB and how does that impact uh, the way you go about finding talent. And we've touched on a lot, but like from MLB, the commissioner and like the owner's perspective, like any version of raising bonuses, a, you know, 10, 20, 25% uh, amount and getting a draft, they see as a huge win. So obviously they're pretty happy with this. And then lastly, and by a long shot, least importantly, how is it for us? <laughs> I feel like it'd be fantastic because this year, the, the big showcase they have where it's like, here's 50 players, uh, every yeah. single one of them has a deal. Uh, they don't have that anymore. So, like, there is no single event I can go to to see all these guys reasonably close to them signing. Uh, and now it would be, like, uh, a TV event. It'd be super easy to see them. There'd be tons of dope. Like, everyone's jacking for position. It would just be, like, another market for us to... Uh, our unique skill sets, I think, would be uniquely suited. Uh, yes, assuming that we would be able to access whatever. I mean, it would... I know that people like to, to say this thing. We're like, well, why wouldn't Major League Baseball want this event covered? It's like promoting their sport and stuff. But baseball has acted uh, against the common person's uh, what they would call like self-interest as far as public relations are concerned a lot. You know, like just look at what Baseball America has been subject to with uh, the restrictions put on their use of video. Like we've talked about this before here, like other sites have not gotten that. Like we don't have a paywall and that's th why it's different. Uh, but uh, like that stuff, uh, I've asked people from MLB for the data that they collect at, uh, you know, we talk, you talk about there being a combine in the future. There essentially already is one like the PDP program, the, yeah. the player developmental pipeline program that MLB has in place that that's collecting data from prep players. A lot of P's in, in this sentence. Across the country from, you know, not just next year's draft, but the draft after that and the draft after that. And I've asked for it and, like, can't get it. So uh, I think, like, there, there are signs that uh, MLB wants to control the media aspect of Prospectum as well uh, and, like, have the only game in town on that end. Uh, and so, like, I don't, I'm not sure that we they'd be like, yeah, sure, Fangraphs guys, come in and uh, cause all sorts of problems for us with your nosiness. <laughs> like, I just don't think that they would do that. So, um, I will say, I did try to go to the Victor Victor Mesa workout, and yeah, I think everyone in that building that worked for a team wanted me to be there because it's like, hey, we get to see what you know what you think, and your video can be up there, so we don't have to take any. It's just a little more convenient. And it will be just like, yeah, you're not you're not coming in here. And I was like, really? And they're like, yeah, we don't we don't care what you think. I was like, yeah, I guess that's about right. Um, all right. Well, I feel like we have uh, covered a lot of ground and most of it a little heavier than we normally do. Uh, as I hoped to promise, um, we will be back on a more weekly basis. And this uh, delivered on that. We will see you next week as the draft stuff continues to heat up. But we felt like this was an important enough topic to go almost one topic all the way through uh, and discuss this and sort of give everybody all of our various thoughts. And, we, you know, if people have a lot of thoughts on this, one of them send us tweets or emails. Uh, what's the email again, Eric? Uh, I think it's just prospects at fangraphs.com. Hold on, let me, let me go to the Twitter account. Look, oh, Twitter, you did that thing where you moved the... 
move the search thing. Yeah, and he's at Long and Hagen. I'm at Kylie McD. Um, I'm curious what, you, yeah, what people think about this because, like, this has not been. I mean, other than Jeff's article, I don't feel like this has been like widely discussed in a way that I would have expected it to be. Um, so now that I feel like we've sort of collected the information of like, here's all the various ways you can feel and all the different parties involved. Like now you're, uh, deputized to have a strong opinion. Uh, so let's... Are... that's Kylie talking. <laughs> what should I not be deputizing people to have opinions? No, you can. It's fine. <laughs> all right. Well, yeah. Tell us what you think. And maybe next week we'll, we'll do some further discussion if anybody has any good ideas, um, or, you know, thoughts on this stuff. Cause it's, uh, you know, kind of important, but yeah, that'll be all for this week. Uh, we'll see you next week. And... Eric, do you have any plugs? No, I don't think so. I'm going to go to Vegas and see Stott against Fresno State, who has several guys tomorrow. I'm going to go see Quinn Priester. I'm going to go to a dope uh, ice cream on a popsicle stick place and then eat the what many call the best burger in America um, right before the game. So that'll be, that'll be a very eventful day for me tomorrow, although I'll be editing this on that flight. So I guess it will have been yesterday. Um, the, cheapest, the cheapest place uh, that was very close to UNLV's campus uh, is called Serene. So that's where I will be staying uh, on Thursday or Friday. Uh, and I'm hoping there's... I'm hoping that it is. It seems like very anti-Vegas. Like there, other places in Las Vegas would seem to lean into the, uh, hey, be up all the time and yeah, like stays, here's a lot of stimulus. There. But yeah, thanks uh, thanks for listening. Sorry for being uh, inconsistent with the posting of it, but uh, here we are. We're back. Maybe better than ever. We'll see. Thanks to Jeff Pass for coming on. Um, yeah, thanks, Jeff. And, He's uh, not yeah, he's the We'll hand it over to Charles Bradley. Take us out. Give an inch, take a smile. I don't know why. Fashion shirt, fashion style. I don't know why. SOS, terrible date. Get me out of here. This is like high quality content here. No, that's not right. (laughs) Much better.